This morning, I want to begin with a question. And the question will perhaps force you to dig deep in your memory bank, but the question is this. What is the most influential conversation you've ever had? What is the most influential conversation you've ever had in your entire life? Can you remember that? And by influential, I mean the game changer. I mean the one that literally changed your trajectory, that maybe even altered the entire course of your life. I mean the kind of conversation in which the things that were spoken to you were so deep and impactful and significant that in one way or another, it made you who you are today. That kind of conversation. Can you remember the most influential conversation you've ever had in your entire life? The reason why I ask that is because the Apostle John had one of those conversations. In fact, he had multiple of those kinds of conversations as he lived with Christ over a three-year period. Probably multiple conversations exactly like that today. But you see, uh, a day, but you see, there, there was one conversation in particular that seemed especially poignant to him. And it was when Christ, one evening, over dinner, hours, just maybe even minutes before he was betrayed and arrested and then eventually crucified, but when Christ unfolded for his disciples one of the most breathtaking theologies of love ever given in human history. That was the conversation. It was a conversation about love. And you know, because you've read it, because that, that that conversation about love was different from how most modern conversations about love typically go. This one wasn't shallow or superficial or sentimental or entitled or feelings-based or man-centered. No, this conversation about love was deep and profound and jarring and world-changing and even, get this, profoundly Trinitarian. It had its roots in the very Trinity himself. And there's just no other conversation about love in history like this conversation about love. I mean, this, it's, which it perfectly explains the letter of 1 John, doesn't it? It perfectly explains why John spends half, almost half of his entire letter unfolding what love is and means and looks like in the Christian life. I mean, everything that John says about love, you can totally tell, come directly from this letter because John sat there, the gospel tells us, not even just inches away from Christ, but leaning up against Christ as he spoke these words about love. And as he spoke these words about love, they embedded themselves in John's soul and changed his life forever. And I want them to change your life also. I want that conversation to change this church. I want the conversation that you're about to see and hear to be the new most influential conversation that you've had in your entire life. And the reason why is because in this conversation, Christ explains what love is, why it means everything, and how to love other people in a way that literally changes the face of human history. Because you remember the scene, don't you? This was Christ's last meal with his disciples in a rented upstairs room in downtown Jerusalem just minutes, minutes before he is arrested and betrayed and 
and beaten beyond human recognition and then publicly crucified. In just a few short hours, he will be a mutilated lump of bloody flesh hanging there on the cross, taking the wrath for sinners, and yet even with the weight of eternity, crushing his soul with an avalanche. It's there that he gives to his disciples and to us the absolute necessity of supernatural love. You see, love is necessary because among the many things that love is, it is, get this now, love is the compelling evidence to the world that Jesus Christ is a treasure of infinite value. That loving one another, get this, is so strategic to the global mission of Christ that if we don't first have love for one another, there is no mission. That's what's at stake here. So let's go to the scene, shall we? The very dinner conversation where John learned everything he ever knew about love. It's where he learned and where we must learn to die the death of radical love. John 15, 9 through 17. Here's where we're going. If you have notes, this is what's on them. This morning, I want you to see from our text two realities. Two realities about how to die the death of radical love. So that your life can be lived with cosmic significance. Two realities about how to die the death of radical love so that your life can be lived with cosmic significance. No overstatement. I mean that and Christ means that. And so the first reality of radical love is this. Number one, you must know the priority of love. You must know the priority of love. In other words, if you want to die the death of radical love, then you need to come to grips with how big of a priority love is in Christianity, how big of a priority love is in the Christian life. And maybe you're thinking, well, I already knew that. I already knew that love was a big deal. In fact, every religion in the world talks about love and emphasizes the priority of love, to which I reply, no, they do not. Not like this, they don't. You understand this is completely unique and and original. There was nothing like this in human history. And when we're done, you'll see why. But to help us understand why exactly love is such a deal breaker in the Christian life, it's in verses 9 through 12 where Christ gives us four aspects of love, four aspects that explain why love is such a massive priority in the Christian life. And the first aspect of love is this. It's in verse 9. I call it the foundation of love. The foundation of love. So this is point 1A, if you want to call it that. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, Even as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Stop there. I don't know if you caught that or not. But what Christ just said, what that is there, that is one of the deepest, most exhilarating verses in the entirety of John's gospel. Because, you see, everybody wants to be loved, don't they? To be, to be the object of someone's affection. To have someone who loves you and cares for you and is committed to doing what's best for you no matter the cost to yourselves. That's what you want. That's what I want. That's what everybody wants. But get this. You have that infinity times infinity when you belong to the Trinity. Because look at what he said. Even as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. See the Trinitarian chain reaction there? 
God the Father loves the Son. God the Son loves you. That's Trinitarian love and affection. And yet, and yet, do not miss what Christ actually says. Because Christ makes a comparison in the text that's absolutely staggering. Do you you see it? Even as the Father has loved me, I have loved you in the exact same way. That's staggering. Because, Because how has the Father loved the Son? How has one person of the Trinity loved another person of the Trinity? How has the Father loved His Son, Jesus Christ? That's a staggering question. And one look at the Old New Testament, and old, I suppose, you can see exactly how He has loved Him. The Father has loved His Son eternally. He has loved Him infinitely. He has loved Him affectionately, and He has loved Him unconditionally. As long as the Trinity has existed, which is always and forever, this is how the Father loves the Son. The Father treasures His Son. He adores His Son. He values His Son. He enjoys His Son. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, that is exactly how the Son has loved you. Isn't that what the text just said? Even as the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Would you hear what he's saying? It's not just that Christ loves you, which he does, of course, but it's that he loves you with the very same force and intensity and affection with which the Father has loved him. And if that feels scandalous, it is scandalous. Because unlike Christ, there is nothing in us that deserves that love, but we have received that love precisely because Jesus Christ is glorious. So you see, when we love one another in the church, do you see what's happening? We are reflecting and sharing and displaying the very love that has existed within the persons of the Trinity forever. But notice... Notice what Christ says at the end of verse 9. The Father has loved me. I have loved you. Abide in my love, he says. You know what that is right there? That's application. He's telling you how to apply what it is he just said. But what does that mean? What does it mean to abide in him? I mean, Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. So what? What am I supposed to do with that? What you do with that is you abide in his love. Meaning what? Wasn't it interesting to you that in verses 1 through 8, Christ told us about abiding in Him? Do you see that? To abide in Him, and what does it mean to abide in Christ? To abide in Him means to cling to Him through His Word with kung fu grip intensity. To abide in Christ is moment by moment. Second by second, desperation and dependence upon him for all that he is and all that he accomplished. And so therefore, to abide in his love is to cling to his love for you with moment by moment intensity. What this means, what this looks like, is that every spare moment that you have in your day, you force yourself to remember that you are the object of the infinite love and mercy of Jesus Christ. And if you do that, if you think about that all the day, 
you're going to become a particular kind of person, aren't you? You think about that all day long, something's going to happen to you. In other words, if you become, if you become infatuated with the sovereign love of Jesus Christ, then there will grow in you an irresistible compulsion to then extend that love to other people. There's a second aspect of love, however, that describes why love is such a priority, and I call it the experience of love. The experience of love, verse 10, look what he says. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Even as I have kept the commandments of my Father, and I am abiding in His love. Now, just hold on a second. What does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, because he kind of makes it sound like that if I obey and keep His commandments, He loves me more. But if I screw up and disobey, He loves me less. Because he just said, if, if, you, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Which means if we don't keep his commandments, we either decrease his love or we lose his love altogether. Is that what he's saying? It can't possibly be what he is saying because look what he says in the second half of the verse. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Even as I have kept the commandments of my Father and I am abiding in his love. Now, this is a tricky verse, I know. But think about it. Could Christ, who is God, by the way, could he have ever done something to jeopardize the Father's love for him? Was Christ implying that there was any way that the Father might stop loving him? That there could somehow be a, a, a rift in the Trinity and that the Father would love him anymore? Is that at all what he's saying? It can't be. It's not at all what he is saying. Rather, his point, get this now, his point is not that our level of obedience changes the level of his love, but that our obedience only changes the experience of his love. In other words, disobedience doesn't decrease his love for you. It only hinders the experience of, the, of his enjoyment of his love for you. Did you see the difference? He's talking about real relationship dynamics here. I mean, we are so big about defining Christianity as a relationship with Christ. And that's right. That's exactly what it is. But you see, for some reason, we forget that a relationship with Christ involves real, actual interaction with Christ as we obey his word and submit to his commands. I mean, any other relationship where we sin against the other person or we violate the trust of that relationship, do we not forfeit the experience and the enjoyment of that relationship? I mean, if I'm a jerk to my wife, I have got to make sure that things are repaired or else I do not enjoy that relationship nearly the way I should. You see, Christ is a real person. This is a real relationship. There's a real connection here. And to abide in his love, that is to experience the unbroken enjoyment of his love requires a condition. And the condition is submission and obedience to his commands. Obedience doesn't make him love you more. Disobedience doesn't make him love you less. But like any other relationship, sin prevents you from having the fullest experience of that relationship. 
So here's the question. Does love, does, does Christ feel distant and strange to you? Does he feel foreign and a thousand miles away to you? Does Christ feel about as real as unicorns and wizards and magic wands to you? Because if so, it could be. It could be that there is sin that has gone unchecked, unchallenged, and unkilled in your life. I mean, it could be that sin has put a strain on your connection to Christ. I mean, not, not that he loves you less than he did before, but because of that sin, you can't enjoy the fullest experience of his love. And here's the catch. If you don't feel loved by Christ, you will not love other people. If you don't abide in his love, that is, experience the unbroken fellowship and enjoyment of his love. Mark my words, you will not love other people. Do you see the connection? Holiness allows us to experience the fullest enjoyment of his love, which then empowers us to love other people. Bottom line, sin kills the soul's capacity to love other people. Sin makes you selfish, reclusive, private, paranoid, distrustful, overly self-conscious. Holiness liberates you to love in the way you should. So if you want to love others with radical love and affection, and I know you do, then you must pursue holiness and obedience to Christ as hard as you possibly can because the more holy you become, the more loving you will be. Which brings us to a third aspect of love. A third aspect of love, and it's number three, the motivation of love. The motivation of love. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, these things I have spoken to you. Why? so that my joy would be in you and your joy would be fulfilled. Well, that's very interesting. Because imagine, imagine for a second if you had a non-Christian friend who was just right on the brink and cusp of becoming a believer. Just, just right on the edge. And you're in a conversation with them and they ask you, okay, right, just level with me, or just level with me. What does it look like to be a Christian? In everyday life, I mean, just tell me, walk me through the day and the duties of a Christian in everyday life. Tell me what that looks like. I want to get a sense of what it is I'm getting myself into. And if you said in reply, well, being a Christian means that you die to self, you die to your preferences, die to what you think you deserve, die to how you think you should be treated. You lay down your life, you prioritize other people, you sacrifice your life for other people, you do what's best for others and not for yourself. If you package the Christian life in that way to a non-believer, do you think that's going to sound very joyful and appealing to them? Probably not. I mean, you get lots, lots and lots of takers for a kind of Christianity, so prevalent in this area, by the way, but lots of takers for a kind of Christianity that's only about your private personal fulfillment and the, and the fulfillment of your highest dreams and aspirations where you at the, are at the center of God's universe and everything is about you and God as a man-centered God and 
yet less people stand in line for a life lived in sacrifice for other people. Less people sign up for that. And yet, and yet, a profound, supernatural joy in serving others is exactly what Christ says a life of love is. Because look very carefully what he just said. Look at the text. These things I have spoken to you. Why? In order that my joy would be in you and your joy would be made full. Question, what reason did Christ just give for everything that he commands? What did he say? What did he say? Joy. Your joy. Your highest Joy is the reason he gives you commands to obey. Well, that's very interesting. We didn't expect that, and yet he said more than that. Look at the text. Everything he commands is not merely that you would have joy, but that you would have his joy, his joy in you. And that's the best news in the world, because guess why? Trick question. Who is the happiest, most joyful person in the universe? Is there, is there anyone in the universe who is more joyful or happy than Jesus Christ? Name one person. Guess what? It's a short list. In fact, there is no list. There is no one in the universe more happy or joyful than Jesus Christ. Because you remember, you remember, the criticism leveled against Christ was not that he was a grouchy jerk with no joy, but that he was a glutton and a drunkard. Not that he was a glutton or a drunk, but you see, they had no category for his levels of joy. They had no idea what to do with him. And you see, the thing is, when you have his joy, when you have his joy, then and only then do you have the fulfillment of your joy. Because look what he says. Everything I command you is for your joy. Everything I command is so that my joy would be in you and that your joy would be made full. You see that his joy in you is the fulfillment of your joy, the completion of your joy. Put it another way, everything that Christ commands is designed is to make you as happy as a human being can possibly be. How's that for a game changer about what the Christian life is supposed to be like? And yet the question is, what does any of that have to do with love? It has everything to do with love. Because he just said, these things, these things that I am speaking in this context right now, in this conversation, these things I am speaking so that my joy would be in you. And what is the very next thing that he speaks? Verse 12. He says, he commands you to love one another with radical affection. Don't you see? Love is the context for the joy about which Christ speaks. The implications of that are devastating. And the implication is, get this, your joy is your motivation for loving other people. There's the implication. Your joy is your motivation for loving other people. In other words, it makes you really, really happy to love and serve other people. 
Why? Because love, love is you finding your highest joy in helping other people find their highest joy in Jesus Christ. That's why. Which seems weird, right? It seems weird. It seems counterintuitive. I mean, if you're always sacrificing, laying down your life for other people, there's no way that's true. But it is true. Because it was Christ himself who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. But I've heard Christians say that. Maybe you've heard Christians say that. Maybe you, you have said that. Look, if all I do is love, if all I do is think about the needs of others, if all I do is sacrifice and care for the needs of others, well, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? Hmm, let's see here. Oh, joy? Your highest joy? The joy of Christ in you, the, the joy, the fulfillment of your joy, the joy of the very second person of the Trinity. But you see, the reason why many Christians think that a life of love will leave them empty is because love with strings attached does leave you empty. Love with a bunch of conditions does leave you empty. Love that looks for some kind of payback or that makes people owe you something in return or that love that has to meet all of your secret expectations will leave you bitter and disappointed in the end because it's not love at all. But helping other people find their highest joy in Christ, well, okay then. making tangible for people the most glorious and satisfying person in the universe? Well, okay. Being a living, breathing representative of the Lord Jesus Christ through affectionate word-centered deeds for the cares of other people, now we're talking that is love. That is literally the secret to your joy, and the implications of this are inescapable, aren't they? The most loving people in the world are the most joyful people in the world. Which explains why I don't have joy many times. Because I'm not this. See, love finds its deepest joy in increasing the joy of others in Jesus. People who only look out for themselves, who only care for themselves, hide themselves from the burdens, the mess of other, other people's lives, they forfeit the joy. It brings us to a fourth aspect of love, namely the exhortation to love. The exhortation to love. Look what he says in verse 12. It says, this right here is my commandment, singular that you should literally be loving one another, even as I have loved you. And there it is, the point of everything he's been talking about. Everything in verses 9 through 11 was designed to get you to this point right here, to prepare you to love other people. And you know just as well as I that lots of religions, in fact, probably all of religions of the world, talk about love. They emphasize in some way love. Islam... Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, even atheists talk about love. But be that as it may, not all love is created equal. Just because they use the word love does not mean they actually have love, nor that it's the same thing about which Christ speaks, because it most certainly is not the same thing about which he speaks. And yet that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? What, 
What is love exactly? If someone asked you, what is love? Tell me what love is. What would you say? What does Christ mean exactly when he says to love one another? Because you'll notice, you'll notice the command is not merely to love, but to love according to the highest standard that could possibly exist. Look what he says. Love one another even as I have loved you. Think on that. Think about this. I mean, do, do you see this? Christ is not calling us to love better than we did before, but to love one another like He has loved. And yeah, how do you do that? How do you how do you love like the very second person of the Trinity? How do you love like the one who became a curse for sinners, who was crushed? For sinners who took the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. How do you love like that? And the answer is, and you can totally tell where John got this, the answer is, if to love is to love like Christ, and it is, then that means that love is to do whatever it takes to do what's best for others. And what's best for others is Jesus Christ himself. That means that love is you doing whatever it takes, even at great cost to yourself, to help other people see Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That's love. To help other people see and savor Jesus Christ for the supremely valuable treasure that he is. That is love. And yet I know what you're thinking. Okay, all right, I, that sounds interesting. I, I like that. What does that look like in, in real life, in real time, in real people, in actual situations? And thankfully, thankfully, it's not super complex. You see, when you show up to church or small group or anywhere else for that matter, you have one aim and agenda. And it is not to make yourself a big deal but it is to make Christ a really, really big deal. Because you think about it, you interface with people all the time, all the time, who have needs, hurts, difficulties, challenges, burdens, struggles, and all sorts of issues that they would never tell another soul. And every single one of those things can only be filled ultimately by Christ, right? And so your agenda, your agenda in every situation, every conversation, every scenario is to mediate and display whatever it is about Christ that anyone needs at any particular moment. That's love. Your job Everywhere you go, everything you do is to make tangible for people the most glorious and satisfying person in the universe, namely Jesus Christ himself. That's love. Don't you see? Don't you see? A healthy church is made up of 10,000 intentional moments a week where we have our senses keenly 
tuned, eyes open to what's really going on in people's lives. The question is, do you know? Do you know what's really going on in people's lives? The question is, in what ways, in what ways can you tangibly display the sufficiency of Christ to the people in your lives? There's a thousand manifestations of what this looks like. And maybe the question is, are you even close to anyone in the church, close enough to be able to, to love them like that? Are you vulnerable and open with your own struggles and weaknesses so that people can love you like that? That's all we mean when we talk about redemptive relationships, that. Because, see, that's what Christ is after. And when you love like that, that is a life lived for cosmic significance. So that's the first reality how to die the death of radical love, which brings us to the second reality, number two. The second reality of how to die the death of radical love, number two, you must know the power to love. You must know the power to love because that is the question, isn't it? How on earth do we get the power to love like this? I mean, where does the power come from to die the death of radical love? And that's exactly what Christ answers for us in verses 13 through 17. In fact, to help us, he gives us three more aspects of love. To to show us where the power comes from to love in a way that changes human history. The first aspect of love, he says, is this, the manifestation of love. So this is point 2A, the manifestation of love. Look at verse 13. Look what he says. He goes, no one has greater love than this. What? That one lay down his life for his friends. So do you see the connection with verse 12? He just got done saying you should love one another. Verse 13 is what it looks like to love one another. And what it looks like is when you lay down your life for another person. Because there are tons of practical ways to love. Tons of practical ways, right? Coffee, get well cards, flowers, coffee, chocolate, paying the bill at a restaurant, coffee. Are you getting the hint yet? This is how you love me now. (laughs) Text with cute emojis, okay, whatever it is. All perfectly legitimate manifestations of love. It's all legitimate. It all counts as love. But you see, according to Christ, there is no greater demonstration of love than when we lay down our lives for other people. Because you'll notice what he says. No one has greater love than this. This right here. The greatest demonstration of love that could possibly exist is when you lay down your life for your friends. That's exactly what he just said. You can't beat that, he says. That's the gold medal, the Nobel Prize, the royal flush of loving deeds. And yet you can tell that Christ is not speaking at all theoretical about this, is he? When he says that someone, someone out there should lay down their lives for other people, what does he mean? He means me. I'm going to do that. I am going to commit the most loving act and deed in the history of the world. And who could deny that? Who who could deny that the death of Christ was the most loving deed ever committed in history? The eternal God coming to earth as a man and dying for his friends, the elect. Taking the wrath he didn't deserve for the sins he didn't commit. 
pushing sinners out of the way and being hit by the bus of the Father's wrath instead of us. That's all right. That's exactly what love is. And yet the implication is clear, isn't it? That's not only how he loves, that's how he wants us to love also. The question is, how do we possibly imitate that kind of love? How do we, how do, we do that? Because here's the thing, if Superman were real, if he were real, we would do well to imitate his example. Right? That, that would be a wise thing, to imitate Superman's example. The problem is, I can't fly, I don't have superhuman strength, and I don't shoot laser beams out of my eyeballs. And I'm certainly not Christ. So how, how do you imitate that kind of love? What, what, what does it mean to lay down your life for other people? Do, does he mean that we physically die for other people? Is that what he means? When I used this example last week, a gunman walks into the church and we take the bullet. We push people out of the way. We let the bus hit us instead. Is that what he means by laying down your life? And of course that's what he means. That's exactly what he means. But he doesn't only mean that. It doesn't only mean that. You see, love, sacrificial love, is not only the ultimate sacrifice, it's every other sacrifice that leads up to death also. In other words, authentic love, get this now, authentic love is any death that you need to die to do what's best for other people. It's any death that you need to die to do what's best for other people, which means sometimes you need to die to your preferences. Sometimes you need to die to your preferences. Not everything has to be the way you like it. Now, it's a hard pill to swallow because my preferences are the best. Sometimes you need to die to your plans. Not everyone has to do what you want to do. Not, sometimes you need to die to your agenda. Not everything has to revolve around the way you want things to go or your schedule. Sometimes you need to die to your expectations or how you feel like you deserve to be treated. Not everything has to be the way you imagined it. Family vacations are miserable experiences when one or more people on vacation do not die to their preferences and their agendas and their expectations. That's the kind of stuff Christ is talking about. Gritty and real and in the trenches of life. And don't get me wrong here. Christ is not saying that a life of love means you have to be some passive mushball that never expresses an opinion. You can have an opinion on the kind of ice cream that you eat. That's fine. But what he means, what he means is that love is dying a thousand deaths a day, if need be, to do what's best for other people. And what's best for other people is Jesus Christ himself. So the question is, what death, dads, do we need to die today? What death do we need to die today? Death to our agenda? Death to our plans? Death to our preferences? Death to our expectations? Death to how we think we should be treated and what we think we deserve? Anyone else? What kind of death do you need to die today to do what's best for other people? I said this last week, and this just hits us so below the belt. I mean, this just punches us in the most vulnerable part of our souls because this is the opposite of our default inclinations. 
There's a second aspect of love in the text that's profoundly encouraging. Second aspect, the identification of those who love. The identification of those who love. In other words, Christ, get this now, Christ is about to explain what it is about your spiritual status as a Christian that empowers you to love other people in the way you ought. And look what he says in verses 13 to 14. Well, look, look at your spiritual status. No one has greater love than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So, so think about that just for a second. If you have been purchased and paid for by Jesus Christ, get this, guess what you are? You are his friends. Friends of the second person of the Trinity. Not a project, not a number, not a mere acquaintance. You are friends of Him, friends for crying out loud. You know what that means? That means that if you belong to Jesus Christ, you are the most well connected person in the universe. Because we love, don't we? We love to name drop. We love to name drop about people we know, quasi-celebrities, famous people we've met, right? Oh, oh I, I met Tom Cruise, <laughs> sat with Tom Cruise on a plane. I didn't actually, but that would actually be pretty interesting. A spirited conversation about the heresy of Scientology. Anyway, that's something, <laughs> something else. Well, we do that. We love to brag about our connections, who we know, who we've been in touch with, whose contact information we have. And it's kind of tasteless and, and kind of gross, to be totally honest. There's one situation in which name dropping is totally appropriate. You see, if you belong to Christ, you know the only person in history who ever raised himself from the dead. You are close personal friends with the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. You personally know in a relationship the one who holds the entire universe into being by the word of his power. You are friends of the God-man, Jesus Christ. And, and, and again, here, here's what's so interesting about this. He is your friend. You are his friends. And what he means by friends, he means the chosen. He means the elect. He means those souls chosen by God, names inscribed in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. The question is, what does it mean to, to lay down your life for his friends? But then, but then notice, notice what he, what he does in verses 14 and 16. He gives three descriptions of his friends. I don't remember if this is in your notes or not. Apologies if not. He gives three descriptions of his friends. Description number one. He says, the friends of Christ obey Christ. The friends of Christ obey Christ. Look at verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. Yikes. That sounds a little shallow. You could be my friend if you do everything I say. But that's not how it means it. That's not how Christ means it. You see, his point is not, I repeat, listen very carefully, his point is not that obedience makes us his friend, but that our obedience reveals that we already are his friends. 
It's not that, not that our, our, we, don't, we don't obey to gain his friendship. We obey because as a result of his friendship. Do, do you see the difference? And at the end of the day, just because you claim to be Christ's friend doesn't mean that you are Christ's friend. Because you understand his true friends, his true friends are those who demonstrate the reality of their salvation through obedience, loving-hearted, glad-hearted submission and obedience to his commands. I've said things like this before. It doesn't matter what you claim at all. The proof of the pudding of your salvation is demonstrated in the reality of obedience and submission to the commands of Jesus Christ. Second description of his friends. Number two, the friends of Christ know Trinitarian secrets. The friends of Christ know Trinitarian secrets. Because everybody likes secrets. Everybody loves to have, loves to have the inside scoop, latest gossip, juicy tidbits and top secret information. But see, what's interesting is that if you are friends of Christ, you have access to the secretest information at the highest level of leadership in the universe, namely the Trinity. Look at verse 15. No longer, the word is literally slaves here, no longer do I call you slaves. Because a slave does not know what his master is doing. But you I have called friends. Get this. Why? Because everything which I heard from my father, I have made known to you. Don't you see? When you belong to Christ, you have security clearance to know the deepest secrets of the universe. And it's the things that the Father revealed to the Son who makes it revealed to us, which includes but is not limited to the meaning of life. How to get to heaven. How to overcome death. How the world is going to end. You know those things, the most important secrets in the universe, and you know them because as friends of Christ, you have been included in a group text between the Father and the Son in the pages of Holy Scripture. I mean, you may not know who you're going to marry or if you're going to marry, but you have access to the deepest secrets in existence because you are friends with Jesus Christ. And you see what that does, how that connects with love is that that frees you from anxiety and empowers you to love. But the third description of Christ's friends, the friends of Christ were chosen by Christ. The friends of Christ were chosen by Christ. Look what he says in verse 16. This is astonishing. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, and that your fruit would remain, in order that whatever you ask the Father, he will give to you. My, oh, my. My, oh, my. What, what have we gotten ourselves into here. I tell you what we've gotten ourselves into. We have gotten ourselves into the sovereign grace and the eternal love of Jesus Christ. Because you realize, don't you, that if you are a Christian here this morning, that if you are friends of Christ, it is ultimately because you are chosen to be so from before time began. Did you know the roots of Christ's love for you? can be traced back in time 
before the foundation of the world, when you were singled out and selected for salvation to be saved by the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ? Did you know that? That not only have you been loved, but you've been loved eternally? What, what an unbelievable statement. Maybe you're thinking, no, 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 that's not true. I chose him. I chose him. I made that decision. To which I replied, that's true. Your faith was real and you did make a choice. But it was a choice that you made only infinite centuries after you were chosen to be a friend of Christ. Because look at what he says. You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you. I chose you. I appointed you. So it's clear, isn't it? The ultimate reason why you have salvation, if in fact you do have it, is because you were chosen by Christ before time to have salvation. Now the question remains, what, what did, for what did Christ choose us and appoint us? What did he choose and appoint us to do? I mean, I know he's talking about talking to the disciples here, but by extension, this applies to us. But what did, for what did he choose and appoint us? And look at the text. I appointed you that you would go and you would bear fruit and your fruit would remain. Do you see that? Christ chose his disciples to go. He chose them not just to save them. He chose them to save them, to send them for a mission. Did you see that? And it's the exact same with you. That's exactly why this church exists. To send you to bear fruit. I mean, I really hope you understand that the Christian life is not merely about improving your personal quality of life, but rather it is about repairing you to be battle-ready soldiers who live lives of Christ-exalting significance for the Great Commission. That's Christianity. That's exactly what he means by fruit. What is fruit other than a life that has been transformed by the sovereign power and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And yet again, here's the final question. What kind of fruit do you think Christ has in mind here? What do, you, what do you think would be on his list of things about a, a transformed life, of a Christ-exalting life lived for the advance of the Great Commission? What kind of fruit do you think he has in mind that your life would reveal and display what exactly? What do you think? You know what it is. The context gives it all away. The fruit about which Christ speaks is love. No doubt about it. A life of love is as radical as they come. The apples and oranges of your salvation is a supernatural love. First for one another and then for the world. We know that's what he means because look what he says in the final aspect of love, verse 17. I'm literally two minutes away. Final aspect of love in verse 17. The command to love. We've said it before. He said it before. He says it again. Verse 17. Look at the text. These things I am commanding you that you would love one another. Heard it again exactly like he said in verse 12. 
Christ chose us to save us, not to live lives of bland inactivity, but to be a people on a mission who infiltrate the darkness, who go behind enemy lines, who stand with our toes on eternity and plead with ruined sinners to be saved. And yet for that mission, what does there have to be or else there is no mission? There has to be love. There has to be love. That's the conversation that changed everything for the Apostle John. That's why I preached on that. Because everything that he says in his letter, you can tell he totally got it from this conversation right here. That's the love that altered the trajectory of his life, that shaped the entirety of, of his ministry. And I want it to change ours. I close with this. Authentic love and affection for other people, you understand what that is, is a catalyst. It's a catalyst. Love is the catalyst for a global mission of undaunted courage. And if we don't have that, mark my words, at the end of the day, there is no mission. Let's pray. Well, Lord, we're so grateful to be able to eavesdrop on conversations like this. Verse after verse, O oh Christ, what you say is staggering. And when we put it together and look at, it at a, look at it as a cohesive whole, we're amazed, we stand amazed at the kinds of things that are happening here in the text, the things you are saying. And oh Lord, we all confess, we all stand equally in last place when it comes to love. We all stand equally disqualified when it comes to this kind of love. And so we need your help, Lord. Would you please free us from the shackles of selfishness? Would you please liberate us from the bonds of self-righteousness and self-exalting feelings of importance? Would you help me to get over myself just a little bit and to think about other people? Oh Lord, this is especially hard when we feel wronged when we feel uncared for, betrayed, snubbed, burned, overlooked, Lord, we need help. We need help with this, Christ, because we, we know that no one was more burned or snubbed or overlooked or betrayed than you. Help us. Help us to love in a supernatural way that reflects who you are. And we look forward to the joy that we will experience as the inevitable and unstoppable result. Thank you. O risen, glorious, and returning Christ for this. In your matchless name.